Welcome into the Orlando Drummer Podcast. This is episode number eight. It is a brutally rainy morning down here in Florida. How are you doing today, Chris? Very wet and somehow very dry at the same time. Well, dry in here. It is pouring. I it's, can hear it. It's just yeah. like a like a doom sound yeah. outside. You got makes, a metal roof on this building. <laughs> makes me want to nap. But Yeah, definitely a sleepy, <laughs> sleepy Saturday sort of vibe for sure, man. But we can't sleep. Yeah, we got a podcast to record. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's funny. I was, um, I got a question for you today to open up. I was uh, grabbing a T-shirt to do this, and I grabbed this one, which is one of our. I'll check this out. I'll zoom in a little. One of the. I released like five of these. I think I had this artist that I had found do. Um, what was that's like a year and a half ago. It's a while ago. I had I found this artist, and I loved his style, so I had him draw all these different components of a drum set, and we put them on like a different. Each one on like a different t-shirt and there were hoodies and things like that. So if you got one of those, let me know. But I am curious, like, how many of you guys actually hunt for drum merch? And when I say merch, I mean like useless stuff that you would wear. So like like t-shirts, necklaces, hoodies, hats, any stuff like that. I, I realized I've hunted for very little of that. For me, it always ended up like I would just collect drum t-shirts either because it came with something I bought. That happens a lot. Or you go to an event and uh, Roland's like, hey, here's a t-shirt, like that sort of stuff. So I have this crazy amount of drum t-shirts and I don't know that I've ever bought any. I just slowly collected them over the years. So do you ever buy drum merch or is it just a, you just encounter it when you go to drum events? I don't know. Usually the only drum merch I've purchased. We had, I got the kick drum yeah. shirt that you got and a hoodie as well. That's yep. the only thing. I you got that gold down. one, that thing is fly. Gold. <laughs> yeah, it's big too. It's just a comfy, nice, Yeah. perfect for this weather. Yeah, I, I thought about doing drum merch for Orlando Drummer before, like actual that it says Orlando Drummer somehow, but never really pulled the trigger. I don't know, it feels like, uh, it feels beside the point. Does that make sense? Yeah. Where it's like there's a thing we're focused on and it's playing drums and getting good at drums and learning drums and sharing drum information and then somebody comes out and they're just like, t-shirt, it's like, ah, not really what we're going for here. <laughs> but if you want a t-shirt, let me know. Maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll do it one day. Maybe. It'd be cool. All right. What's our first segment? What we got? We'll roll into a, a newer one, a fun one, uh, Player Puzzle. Player Puzzle? That's right. That's super fun, man. So with so many drummers out there, it's hard to tell the difference, but some drummers are indistinguishable from others. We'll provide three hints to Adam in this segment to see if he can guess what drummer uh, I've picked out for him. So let's see if we can stump him. All right. So we start out with an audio clue. Okay. already just based off of the level man okay oh i have a guess i don't want to it's it, it's between one of two and it's really just based off of how unbelievably good the phrasing is like super abstract ideas but even for being that abstract they're unbelievably clean. There's just a small number of drummers that that could be. I'll I'll give a hint to anybody out in the out watching. Um, the initials CP CP come to mind, but we'll we'll go further. We'll we'll get some uh, 
Okay, let's let's go to the next one. What we got? Oh, the next the, hint. Uh, just, a, just a hint, a little fact. Uh, okay. This drummer was nicknamed the Phrase Blaze by a fellow Minel Symbols artist. The Phrase Blaze. <laughs> oh, that's tough. I would have to know who the art. Yeah, that's such an inside joke for them. That's tough. I mean, he can blaze some phrases, so I get it. You know, you're not you're not wrong, huh? I think we got to do kit kit photo before I'm hundred percent confident. Okay, okay. So my guess is right. This is Chris Proprota. Yeah, Chris Proprota. That Philadelphia drum company. He had that kit made for him for sure. Um, are the toms the same depth? It looks like ten by seven and like twelve by seven, maybe twelve by eight. A little more, a yeah, little bit more on the yeah. shallow side. I like that. If I was ever gonna do a twelve-inch tom, like an idiot. I would at least make it, I would at least have the decency to make it shallow. <laughs> man, Chris Proto, yeah. And it's weird, man. He's the epitome of like, really, he, he could have been in Sleeper Spotlight in that people sleep on Chris Proto. He is so unbelievably high level. It's, it's really hard to describe how good that guy is. And he shreds a guitar, too. I mean, he's... he's Does he really? Yes. He's very, very good oh, at guitar. Dang. And just like with drums, unique style. It's not like he's just doing... Covers. I don't think he hardly does any covers. All original, all wild fusion stuff. Um, unbelievably talented, and that kit sounds so good. It's really, um, it's really bitey. I wonder if it's birch. I don't think it's like a maple kit. I think it's some some sort of snappier wood. Um, but he plays small sizes, and he's got super dried out cymbals. I mean, very very unique kit sound, unique setup, and just so disgustingly good at drums. That's why I said there's only a handful of people that that clip could have been. Mm -hmm. um, he's he's that that good. So if you don't know Chris Proprota, go check him out. I, don't, I weirdly don't think I've ever met Chris. He's in some like group drum chats. And yeah, we've talked a few times like, like in that kind of context, but um, dope guy, absurd player. So go check out Chris Proprota, man. That was, that was a good one for sure. Sweet. All right, next. Oh, I know this one. <laughs> I somehow got this one. I'll give everybody a chance. Oh yeah, we're going straight in on the, well, do I want to ruin it for everybody? Do I want to ruin it? Let's if, not ruin if, it. If, I, I if know you don't know it, this one was difficult. You can't find. He's so, he's too, he's too unique. Yeah, um, he's of a drummer. yeah. That's the thing. If you know him, you would recognize him right away. Yeah. Well, let's not ruin it. What's the hit? Give everybody at home that the the fun fact. So his country of origin is on the border of the Mediterranean Sea. <laughs> a little uh, geography for I, you. I picked that because you're terrible at geography. I'm so bad at my uh, weakest subject. I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know where I live. <laughs> and. Uh, uh, yeah, here's his kit photo. Sure, send it over. Okay, so yep, I know exactly who this is. If you don't know, spoiler alert, it's coming. Uh, this is Dan Mayo. Uh, and Dan Mayo is, you know, uh, so we got to hang out at NAMM the last time I went. I don't know what year that was. We got to hang out with him for a little while. Super cool guy and a very soft-spoken sort of laid-back guy for such an aggressive, crazy player. But... It's funny, I remember hanging out with him and Brody Simpson, who's just another disgusting player. And, you know, Brody mentioned something about Dan's pocket where he, he basically said that where his 
pocket sits, like where he puts the backbeats of snares and where he places certain things. There's something about like the position where he chooses to put like the backbeats of snares is just a good example, where it's so uniquely his own like groove and pocket, sort of like a Benny Greb thing, and that like, oh, that's just how the grooves feel when this person plays it. Dan Mayo is very much like that. So there was something about the A and F kit, which is pretty distinguishable. Um, and then those the really dried out symbols and the phrasing ideas, you know, all of that helps. But also it's like where his groove sits. It's just like, yep, that's exactly where that guy's pocket is. It's really hard to quantify that sort of stuff. Like I don't know how to describe how it's so recognizable. It just kind of is. Um, but yeah, man, that's Dan Mayo. And what country is he actually from? Israel. Israel. Okay. I, that would have been my guess, actually. Yeah. Uh, he's so good. Freakishly good. Um, and he's got a band, a project that he does. I can't think of the name of Dan's band. Um, yeah, go check out Dan Mayo if you don't know him. You very well might. He's done some some bigger minor videos. And so is Chris Proto, actually. But, man, you picked some savage minor artists for this one. Two absolute yeah. murderers, man. Murderers. Love them. That'll yep. do it for Player Puzzle. Cool, cool. Move on to Accent or Ghost. Accent or Ghost. Uh, this is a piece where we get Adam's view on many aspects of the drumming industry, and at the end we'll get an approval, an accent, or a disapproval, a ghost. So first up, what do you think about coded rezzo heads? Coded rezzo heads. And so... That's a frustrating one. My buddy Matt Brown, who I've done an interview with Matt Brown on OrlandoDrummer.com before. He's a, a local guy. He's a, an engineer, and he's a really good drummer. But he's also, like, in drum guru territory when it comes to, like, teching. Like, knows a ton about tuning and a lot of the physics that go into drums. Uh, just a guy that can school you on a lot of topics. And I haven't hung out with, with Matt in quite a while, but we, we got food several times and, um, and did an interview here in the old studio. And I remember when I was talking with Matt uh, about this kit, he was helping me tune some things up and he asked if I had ever tried coded rezzo heads. I know they do a very, it does a very specific thing. I don't wanna like, like remember it incorrectly, but I'm pretty sure what it does is just like a little bit of extra muting. Like mm -hmm. it really doesn't let the drum fully sing all the way. It sort of uh, controls a lot of the tone, especially in toms. I don't know. I would say if you were going to do that, it would still have to be very thin. So probably somewhere around like an Evans G1 coated would be the move. Something something uh, not not too overkill. I would be curious what happens if you go like G2, G2, like, you know, two heavier heads on the top and the bottom. But I'm pretty sure just in the realm of control, it would be a good idea. Um, I've definitely tried it before. I just wish I could remember like which clip to bring that up and sort of reference like what exactly the coded rezzo on the bottom sounds like. But if I'm not mistaken, I think Benny Greb does this. I think he puts a very thin, like a single ply coded remo on the bottom head sometimes. Um, so it, yeah, definitely something to look into. I wish I could speak more on exactly what it sounded like, but I think for, yeah, the right studio environment for sure, or maybe live, I don't, I don't necessarily know. Um, yeah, I'll have to give that the accent. I think it's a good idea. Good idea to try out and experiment. And I always tell people too, like, with any rezzo head, it's one of those things that you only change every, how do you change a rezzo head? Be honest, not once a month. Like, sometimes it's once a year. And it's weird because people pick one, and it works okay, and they get a decent sound out of it. And then they don't think about this again until it's time to buy the next one. And instead of doing the research and experimenting a little bit, they'll just buy the same one again. And so what you find is people have been playing drums for years and years, but they only know of like one or two rezzo heads that they might like. 
So it's one of those things, I would just pick maybe maybe your rack, Tom, and go buy three. Buy like three different Rezo heads. Get a coated thin one, um, get something like an EC2 with maybe a little bit of muting built in, and then get like a more generic clear one like a G1 or something. I'm just using all Evans ones because that's what I know. Um, but it, it's worth experimenting. You can find some weird combinations and it's always more subtle than the batter side. It's never as extreme, but you never know, man, like that that last little 5% difference in making your drum sound how you hear it in your head. Sometimes the rezo head can be that last little difference. So it's worth experimenting, but grab a coated one next time, yeah. Grab a coated, coated or accented, sweet. Yeah. This next one is a photo. Okay. Uh, I believe I sent that to you earlier. Okay. The Top Lug Signature Junior Robinson Snare. Whoa. What is going on? Somebody sawed this snare drum down the middle. Inch. Okay, so it's like, let's see. We got to talk this weird, this weird so, thing out. So I got a blurb from the site. Okay. It says, the Top Lug Snare Drum, which premiered at the 2020 NAMM show, made a strong impression amongst drummers and in the specialized press. Imagine that the drummer can adjust the number of lugs both on the batter and resonant head. Imagine that just in a few key turns, with our exclusive and unique concept, the drummer can move each lug around, top and bottom. It's the ultimate freedom in snare drum tuning. So not only can you move the lugs to different positions to not necessarily be symmetrical positions, okay. you can also just keep adding lugs on to either the top or bottom uh. of the snare. So you wanted to have a 16... Intri okay, yeah, I, yeah, I get it. So I guess what I'm curious about is what is the difference between having, let's say, 20 lugs or 20 points of tension where it's actually pulling down on the rim versus well too low would suck if you only had three like a triangle like you're just gonna have dead spots i would think more is probably better in terms of control that you could get this in you could get it in tune more like precisely if you had more control points i guess i don't know the advantage of taking them away why you like why would you have less lugs necessary well Oh, there's the balancing act. If you have too many lugs, you have too many points of contact with the shell. At a certain point, like the whole thing is just gonna have hardware all over it. So this does give you a weird amount of freedom for sure. But see, the, the other thing that this opens up is that you could have somebody that had totally incorrect tension, right? Like they could put them all on one side or they're not evenly spaced at all. So I would wonder like how easy is it to evenly space these lugs around and is it a problem if you didn't do that? If there was like even quarter inch gaps between the lugs that didn't match all the way around the drum. I'm not totally sure. Also, so that, that middle bar where everything's anchored to, that thing must be solid. It must be made out of something really heavy duty. Yeah. Getting yanked on yeah. all sorts of different ways. Only held in by tension, I would assume. I don't think that it's like, there's no point on this photo well, where it looks like it's attached to the shell. Yeah, it's tough, it's tough to say. It must be attached in somewhere to something. It couldn't just be floating. Other, Well, I guess it could, but you would have to play this really uncomfortable game of like hooking all the rods on to get it to hold in place. I don't know, it's interesting. Yeah, I'd have to, I'd have to play it and see, and we talked about this maybe just in the last episode, where like, I'm interested if the drum still sounds good, but if it's just like tech for the sake of tech, and it ends up being like, cool but ultimately way too annoying to actually use in any real scenario i'd be a lot less interested then but it's interesting it's 
I mean, there's a whole lot of ways to put a drum head over a circle and then pull it down tight, right? I mean, there's a whole lot of ways to do that. So this is kind of an interesting one. I do like the ability to rearrange the lugs. That seems like you could find some use in a studio, like a high-end situation mm-hmm. where where you would do that. I guess I just don't know exactly what the sound difference would be between 10 lugs and six lugs. Maybe just more like precision, right? The more lugs you have, you can really dial that in by tuning you know, one inch apart from each lug or something like that. That's a little ridiculous, mm-hmm. but yeah, interesting. I'll give the concept the accent, but it's a skeptical accent. I'm not, not too, too sure how necessary this is. And, and no comments on the price? 1,200 pounds? What's that in Euros. USD? Euros. Euros? So it's going to be a little bit more on U.S. dollars. Mm. Uh, see, I'd have to hear it. I'd have to hear it to, to say. Because what if it sounds no better than a, than a $400 snare drum? Then all of a sudden you're paying for this, like, you're paying for a concept and for tech, which is admittedly very cool and very impressive. But at the end of the day, if uh, that's the only thing to be appreciated is just the tech... There's better ways to spend your money, I think. So I don't know. Also, you got to have some sympathy for the people that make this in that they're probably just basing it off of what it costs them to make it. And it's probably not cheap to make something that doesn't exist, right? You haven't scaled it, things like that. So I don't know. But for a snare collector, if you were into some wild snare drums, this one would probably be on the list because that's cool. I've never seen a snare drum like that. So, you know, points for originality, man. Absolutely. Sweet. Skeptical accent. Yeah. All right, cool. So we're going to move on. Next topic. What do you think about 3D printed drums? And I have an example. I sent you a photo of okay. the Wizdrum All-In Kit. This is a kit that is fully 3D printed. Whoa. We're already there, huh? Wizdrum. Let's see. Well, read us the read us the thing first. Let's, let's go through it. So the Wizdrum Kit has a beautifully unique sound and is suitable for the various genres. It's very compact, and that makes it perfect for small spaces and traveling. It features a revolutionary and easy tuning system and is quick to set up. With the Wizdrum All-In Kit, you can play in both a standing and sitting position. The hi-hat can be played with a manual hi-hat system as well as foot pedals. It's available in six color schemes. Yay! Yay. Shipping costs will are calculated at checkout. Yeah, a little Shipping. typo there. Oh, whiz drunk. And uh, 11.53 euros, which is, yeah. I don't know, $1,400 US. Interesting. First of all, I have a weird pet peeve for standing up and playing drums. Sit down. I do not... <laughs> I don't like that. I don't like that. Do Latin music where it is acceptable for you to stand. I, well, it's just, it's like at the drum set, at the drum oh, set. I man. don't get it because there is zero advantage to doing that. None whatsoever. So it seems very like, like attention seeking E is what it seems like. We're, we're just doing a weird spectacle. Like you don't have to do that. And it's actually way easier to use the pedals if you sit. Uh, but of course, Latin percussion, all that stuff changes a little. Um, so, and it's, it's, so it's 3D printed, which is weird because I imagine that it would be small, but this clearly is like somewhat big, like a rock band kind of setup, you know. It, it is pretty small. I, I looked at some videos from Nam 2020, okay. and it is, it's like a children's kit. Yeah. Oh, man. And it's, so here's the thing with, with being that shallow in depth with looks like no rezos on them you know what that's going to sound like it's not going to have a realistic tone yeah it's going to be real real bonky is what it's going to sound like and ultimately 
what I what I would personally use this for would be practice, right? I would use it for some version of practice. Like DW makes a kit. I had it years ago. I really wish I had held on to it. The DW Go Anywhere or yeah. practice kit, that thing, uh, which is basically like a really high-end, heavy-duty DW stand with four arms that come off with different practice pads. And man, that thing was super useful. I used to use it all the time when I didn't have the ability to just play whenever I wanted. Um, Tony Royster owns that, and he I've seen him post clips with it years ago. It was a popular little thing, and for like 179 bucks, something like that. Yeah, pretty affordable. Yeah, that's pretty affordable for what it is. I've also seen Meinl, who makes all sorts of different practice pads. I've seen people rig up. Um, Wajtech did that, I think. Like, yeah. ri like rigged up di a different like practice sort of kit, and I really like that. I think that's really, really useful. I also think it it's some sort of in between of like practice pad practicing and drum set practicing because at least you can get orchestration practice in, right? Like, like just the motion of moving around a little. I think that's a a, a whole new feature of practice that you can get in while still being on practice pads. That's kind of what I see here as far as like. A real usable sound for that amount of money. If we're in the what thirteen, fifteen hundred mm -hmm. US dollar range in there, man, you can buy an entire drum set for that. You could get something along the lines of a Pearl Rhythm Traveler or a Sonar Safari or like a little baby kit in that three to five hundred dollar range, and a super dope ride and a nice set of hats and good heart. I mean, you could get all of that for around the same price. And admittedly, this is far more portable. You got to give it give it to them on that. But overall, I think I gotta ghost this one, man. There are better ways to spend that amount of money. If it was 400 bucks, it would be a hard accent. But I think for the price and everything I'm seeing here, no, I, 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 there's gotta be a better way to spend that amount of money, for sure. That's, that's how I would feel about it. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're working on the price, they probably are. But I would say for price alone versus what you get and how this has to sound being configured this way with the shallow, no rezo heads, and the suggestion that we're gonna stand up. No, we're not standing up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is a ghost. This is a ghost for me. That gets to go, and then sort of a two-parter too. What do you think about three D printed drums? We're talking about drum manufacturing. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. Um, I suppose I would want to know what is the medium that a three D printed thing is. Is it plastic? Some sort of what is it? Like, what are we? What are we yeah. touching? It's a plastic. Yeah, I mean, I think the closest example we would have sonically would be an acrylic kit, right? Where it's this non-organic material that we sort of made. Um, and acrylic kits, I mean, acrylic kits can sound good. They can sound good. They're normally really loud. Every acrylic kit I've ever played is very loud, very punchy. Not super resonant, but like a really bold sort of presence. And so... Well, it's interesting with anything 3D printing because as that market expands in all sorts of different sectors, what ends up happening is that you don't have to go to the store to get a thing. You would print it in your house in theory, right? So this will first come up where like, let's say there's a part of your engine or your car that you needed to repair. You could print that obscure little shaped part and go put it in your car. That, that sort of thing is I think where we'll see this happen first. But... I, you're not gonna be able to print a drum in your house. Nobody's gonna have anything remotely that yeah. that big. What, where it gets interesting though is at scale because if you could 3D print drum sets, how many of them could you make in a day? And if you can do that, if you can just crank these out for a very low cost, then you could sell them for a very low cost. So I could see a world where 3D printed drums are really, really, really cheap mm -hmm. because they're really cheap to produce and you could just print out 
a functional drum set. Maybe it doesn't sound nearly as good as a wooden drum set, but it also cost 99 bucks for all the shells because this yeah. was not hard to do. So I also think they'll probably end up printing parts and components for drum sets long before the shells themselves are made out of it. So in theory, you would print out uh, like a rim, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Or a throw-off or yeah. a lug. That does make a lot of sense, actually, that you would print out parts like that. But then how strong is it? Because all this goes under tension. Like a rim sounds like it would be pretty doable until you crank the hell out of it and then watch it snap in half or yeah. bend or something, right? Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, the question is like, where does 3D printing and drums, where do they like meet? I don't think we're done with the whiz drum. I don't think yeah. that's where it is necessarily. Well, I'll, I'll tell you an interesting example. Back in 2019, um, Dan Polovich, who's the drummer of Panic at the Disco, okay. contacted Stratasys Direct Manufacturing to print him a fully 3D printed snare drum. And hmm. basically, it's it's like a snare drum that the shell and the lugs are all one piece. And then you put on the heads and the rim. And oh, that's interesting. So yeah. it's, it doesn't sacrifice any sound. But as far as price and the, the, the manufacturing them at scale, right? He only got two snare drums for yeah, like a tour for a year. Two in the world. And who knows, with all of the you know communication of... Dan and Stratasys back and forth how long that took and how much money that took. Yeah, and, it could have cost 10 grand and taken yeah. two years to get one snare. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's an example of it. Companies can do it, yeah. but is it is it real? Is it to scale? Is yeah. it for the everyman? Or is it only for professional touring drummers who contact manufacturing companies? Sure. And this is a problem that... I remember this came up with, like... Uh, remember Google Glasses a few mm -hmm. years ago? And... You know, the idea was you put on a pair of glasses and there's sort of like some sort of screen in there and they have cameras and, you know, the technology exists. You can make that and it does work and it is really cool. But there are certain ideas where you have to, it's not just about creating the product, it's about can you get this to a price point where anybody would actually buy this? Because if you, let's just say Google Glass, I'm, I'm pretty sure they were like 1500 bucks. Yeah, they had launch parties with them. There's yeah. videos of people using them. But... $1,500 products do not fly off the shelves the same way that something like a $200 product might, right? So it's one of those things where, you know, you can make a car with all these insane features, but if it costs a million dollars, you're only selling so many of those cars. So the name of the game sometimes is just getting the cost down so you can scale this up and eventually move a lot of these products. I would think that's one of the battles that you have with 3D drum stuff is like, well, it can it be done? Yes. But can it be done cheaply and to scale and then distributed where it, this is in the homes of like half the drummers in the world? You know, that game can take 10 years to play or, the, or rather that problem can take 10 years to solve. So it's interesting that there's examples out there, but there's also no examples that you could just go grab off of a shelf, right? Uh, there's a reason for that sometimes. So I'd be curious. I think we'll see more of this in the future. I'm sure we will. Cool, cool. We're going to accent a ghost 3D printed drums. 3D printed uh, as, as, the as they exist in the world today. Uh, today? Oh, man, I'd say it's too early. We have to give it a ghost as well. Uh, not, not ghosting the attempt, and I'm excited to see where we can take that. But as far as you buying one now, do I want a 3D printed drum? No, we're not there. Not there. Sweet.
I mean, not sweet. <laughs> not uh, sweet. No, wrong reaction. Horrible. That sucks. Uh, cool. We got some ghosts. We got some skeptical accents. Moving on. Okay. To Sleeper Spotlight. Sleeper Spotlight. If you're not familiar with this segment, we introduce a drummer to Adam, and we get his thoughts, impressions, and any constructive criticism, if there is any. And constructive criticism, if there is any. Everybody sucks. And I suck at talking, so it's fine. <laughs> if you want to feature me on your podcast and talk shit about me, go ahead. <laughs> All right. So first up is Flavio Ganuzio. Okay. So looks like dude uh, surrounded by plywood. Surrounded by plywood. Gotcha. Yep. Flavio, what you got? Coma. Da, 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 da. With the splash clothes on the left foot. And modulating. Man, very cool. You know what I love about this playing is that it is a weird mix between what I would describe as like classic drumming and that some of those ideas are pretty, I guess, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but like they're old ideas. Like they're ideas that you can hear in other people's playing on different albums over a long period of time, like classic, more traditional sort of ideas mixed with very modern um, sort of like progressive chops in a weird way. It's a cool hybrid of those two. Like I could see him slightly amending his playing and fitting in really well in like a classic rock cover band or I don't want to say classic rock necessarily, but like um, playing music that appeals to a wide variety of people, like maybe a studio setting where you just need play the predictable part that's supposed to be here. I could see him being that way. And then also if you took all of those parameters away and said just like shred or just like chop out, it seems like he could do that as well. So I see a really cool blend between those two. Um, floor time sounds sick. I really like those ideas. And also I'm looking on the wall, Dom Familiero, is that like a certificate from a camp or something that he did? Could be. Maybe. Dom is so sick. He's one of the most like, I don't want to call him underrated. Um, I'll say he's underrated to the younger generation uh, of drummers. There's a lot of young players who don't know how good of an educator and a player Dom Familiero is. So if you if you don't know who Dom is, absolutely look him up. He is such a cool guy. I've never met him, but he's like high on my list of people I, I'd want to meet and hang out with. And I would imagine that uh, Flavio here has done a camp or something like that with him. But yeah, that was sick. That was absolutely sick, man. Do we oh, have another clip from him? Yeah, we've got another one. Okay. Oh, okay. I see the same walls here. Got the OSB on the walls. Second one from Flavio. It makes sense. He's that's a good example of that. Modern and classic. Mm 
Very good, man. Very, very clean, intentional playing, absolutely. I can hear some Weckle in there. I mean, obviously he's playing a Weckle track, but yeah, Weckle is probably a good example of like playing what is suppo supposed to be played in the spot, like kind of in a weird way predictable, like, oh, that was the right fill. That was the right choice for that moment. But then also like still managing to surprise you with some of the ideas. I see a lot of that in his playing and killer technique. He feels, feels very comfortable, right? Which is... Uh, that's an earned state. You have to, you got to play for a long time to make other people convinced of how comfortable you are without trying to do it. And I see a high level of comfort here where he's not, not straining to play any of the, any of these ideas. They're sunk in very deep into his musical identity. And that's really obvious. So absolutely killer player, man. Go follow, uh, go follow Flavio if you want a young shredder. I say young. He seems Seems young. Yeah, I don't know how young. Yeah, very, old. very good, man. Very good. That was an awesome one. Super good. All right, next up is Rockford, or full name Artem Mahmadov. Okay, Artem. Uh, let's do this one here from Artem. What All you right. got? Kit sounds good. Thick kick. Did it cut? Kids dialed, man. Sounds great. Man, that kit sounds so good. Really, really awesome kit sound. I like how fat everything is. There's like a thickness to the entire mix for sure. Um, and cool feel too. I feel like I have one. What's it called? Oh God, it's like eight years ago or something. A very a feel that I that I taught a lesson on on YouTube that was like really, really similar to that cool little linear chop idea for sure. Um, really, really clean playing. I also like the, he had some hi-hat embellishments in the groove that were like very simple, but like very cool sounding. Like a little, not triplet, but like a little triple thing that he put in on the hi-hats there. Really, really cool, man. Clean playing. Um, and again, I love this kit sound. I love how like meaty the whole thing is but very, very clean. Let's go to the next one here. What we got? Those 15 inch uh, Minel dual hats, man. You hear those things a mile away. JP Bouvet plays those, a few others. Real dry, open, open sounding hats. Uh, very, very cool, man. It's the grooves like this one where there's a little bit of uh, syncopation in the snare hits happening so that the backbeats aren't all on two and four. There's a dynamic thing happening with the right hand eighth notes where they're not all steady. It's uh, 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 uh. Um, and then there's 30 second note diddles, right? And so we embellish them in different ways, sometimes on the hat, sometimes on the snare, sometimes mixed between the two. You know, grooves like that with so many different elements and textures inside of the groove, 
they can be very telling where there's so many things that could go wrong, so many things that you have to do correctly for this to be pulled off that I like seeing somebody play a groove like that because it is a demonstration of like five different skill sets at, at once, right? There's a certain amount of not true independence, but like dynamic independence where I can hear that he is consciously amending the volume uh, of the hi-hats, you know, like in the in the eighth notes. I can hear, or rather I can tell that he's got um, a good, good idea of like swing versus straight because he's sort of manipulating the feel of the groove. Um, I can tell that he's done some sort of permutation work because he's really comfortable putting the snare not where it's supposed to go, but a little bit over here, right? Like that funk syncopation. Uh, I can tell that he has done practice pad work and worked on technique because all of the 32nd notes that all of those are super dialed in and articulate, right? And so it's cool because this groove is a good example of like, I don't know, just a, a playing style that that demonstrates many different skill sets at once. So I can tell that this is a really well-rounded player just from that simple of a groove. So really, really cool, man. Awesome player. I'd love to hear in another clip. I know we can only play so many clips. We're not going to play 100 clips from him. But I would love to hear more exploratory playing, right? I would love to hear something where it's like uh, it's not a groove that you've rehearsed a thousand times. And it's not something that you and I both know that you can clearly play. I would love to hear something where there's a little bit more reach in the playing uh, to hear what are what are some of the ideas that are sort of on the edge uh, of your playing. I'd like to hear that just to sort of hear a little bit more of your own voice, a little bit more of your own character. But um, like I said, this groove shows off a whole bunch of skills at once. Really cool, man. Really clean playing. Um, and the backward sticks too. So a little bit of a rebound challenge you got going on there. But yeah, awesome player, awesome kit. That was cool, man. Cool. All right, that'll close that sleeper spotlight. And we'll move on to Q&A. Q&A. Yeah. So this is the part of the podcast where we answer any questions that come from either YouTube, Instagram, the forums of OrlandoDrummer.com, or sent straight to me at Chris at OrlandoDrummer.com. Yeah, man. Send them over. So first question from Jonathan Tercio 17 Okay. What do you think about less is more? Less is more. It's a it's very important. Very important concept for sure. Because, you know, I... I originally heard this, I want to say from J.P. Bouvet, though he's he's not the first person to, to have said this, but um, you know what? <laughs> Screw it. I'm going to borrow a direct thing that he said in a clinic one time. So full credit to J.P. Bouvet for this analogy. But if I were to ask you, if I were to give you a, a homework assignment for this podcast, that's a shitty podcast. Who wants a homework assignment? But you know, <laughs> if I were to do that and I were to give you a piece of paper and just say, make me art, come back next week and give me art. It's really difficult to do that. It's super, I mean, I've given you no parameters whatsoever. But when you set up boundaries or limitations like draw me an airplane or draw me a fish, that's the kind of art I want you to make. And I want you to use a pen and this paper. I want a black and white drawing of a fish. All of a sudden, it's a lot easier to be creative because of the boundaries, right? And this is a concept a lot of people have explored in, in a lot of different ways. But the idea would be that when you have infinite options, infinite choices, sometimes the choices become hard to make without any boundaries. And so this is one of the reasons why I don't recommend that an early drummer or a young drummer get a really massive setup with like 15 toms and 4,300 cymbals or whatever version of that you wanna have. Like it is not, it's not gonna serve you to have that many choices because 
you're not too good at making choices yet, right? Like being creative and making those creative decisions, sometimes there is an element of, it just becomes easier when you don't have as much going on. So for example, if I put you on a kick, snare, and hat, and there are no toms, there are no cymbals, well, you're gonna play your first few grooves that you might have for kick, snare, and hat, but then you're gonna run out of ideas. And because of the limitation of what you're on, you know, the, this kit that you're on, you're gonna be confronted with, with the reality that you have to create something new a lot sooner than if you had 400 toms to play something across. I also think you can get very distracted by having too many options, which would be, you know, less is more. We're talking about stripping everything down. But if you went the opposite direction and you had this mega Ter Terry Bazio like living room size kit, if you're playing the idea of like, let's just say something easy, right, left, left kick, and you're moving the right hand around the drum set, if that's what you were doing, you could spend an entire day playing that pattern over and over and moving the right hand to a different tom, one of 400 toms that you have available. And ultimately, you haven't really practiced anything. I mean, you practice right, left, left kick, and you practice orchestrating that right hand, but in your mind, especially an early drummer, they might perceive that as though they have practiced the same fill orchestrated in a thousand different ways. But really, you don't need to do that. You should, yes, you should be able to move that right hand anywhere that you want around the drum set freely, but exploring it on too many options is kind of a waste of your time. You don't really need to do that. So there's a lot of conceptual reasons why I think less, and less is more is a really important thing to keep in mind. I'm not telling you that you just have to go take stuff off of your kit necessarily, but it can be a really helpful practice tool when it comes to fostering creativity in that if you, if you think of creativity as something that can expand as you add limitations, a limitation could be a smaller drum set. It is limiting to have a smaller drum set and you will force creativity upon yourself a little bit faster. So there's many arguments on both sides of this, but I would say um, that creativity seems to be a lot easier when you have some sort of boundaries or limitations and a smaller kit would be one of those. So uh, yeah, it, you know, it's also, this is a really strong argument for buying less gear that is of a higher quality. Don't get 10 symbols that are all very low quality, I would argue you should get two symbols that are both individually super, super nice. I think that would be a way smarter way to do it. Uh, but to each his own. If you're playing Dream Theater, you know, I guess you need the mega kit. It depends <laughs> on what you're doing. It depends what you're doing, right? But if you're early and you're learning and being creative, yeah, man, go small, go small. There's, there's a lot of like, very tricky benefits that are hard to describe, but they're there. I also know that's not exciting because you want gear. You know, I get it, I get it. But I, yeah, I've been in shrinking mode for a long time. I want smaller, I want less. I don't want to expand and get bigger. And I found a lot of benefit there, yeah. Yeah, discover ways to be happy with what you have. Yeah, sure. that too, that too. All righty. Pariato, oh, let me start that one over Nailed again. Nailed it, nailed it. <laughs> Pariato01 <laughs> okay. asks, do you have beef with the 12-inch rack tom? Yes, yes. I will fight a 12-inch rack time. All right, so why? <laughs> why? Well, it's, so this first started in, oh, what year was that? 10-plus years ago when I worked at Sam Ash. 1984. 1984. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't alive then. Um, close. But, yeah, man, so we, I worked at Sam Ash, and there's a lot of unboxing kits that come in. Some are cheap and some are expensive, all sorts of different kits. 
And as you unbox them, many times you have to tune them because they don't all come in perfect tune. Uh, and sometimes they come in used. And so I, there was a lot of, uh, I, I got a lot of my tuning experience working at Sam Ash, which was really cool, really grateful for that, especially to tune all sorts of different types of kits. But notoriously, 12-inch toms were the hardest to tune. They were the absolute worst, man. I don't know why, but I wasn't the only one who felt this way. There were a lot of people that were just like, yeah, man, 12s can just, they're really tricky sometimes. And I don't know if it's that like the size of a 12-inch tom is what makes it so difficult or if it's just that our ears like the group of people that were doing the tuning. Like we just weren't accustomed to what that was supposed to sound like, but it always felt like this weird middle range where I could never get, get it perfectly dialed in. Also, I really dislike, I'm just gonna list things I hate about 12 inch toms because I don't know how else to, <laughs> how else to respond to this. Um, I think 12 by nine, something about the boxiness of that standard size is really gross, not into that. If I were ever to have a 12 inch tom, um, it would have to be much more shallow, like 12 by seven, maybe 12 by eight, but 12 by nine is like this weird chunk that I don't like. I don't like how it looks. I've seen 12 by tens, <laughs> never could do that. Um, but I also think it's a little weird because of where it goes, because if you had a 22 inch kick drum with a 12 by nine um, rack tom, which are both very standard sizes, I genuinely don't know how you put that above your kick drum and are comfortable with the height. Because for me, it's not even close to where I want to keep my tom. Admittedly, I play a 10 by seven rack tom and a 20 inch kick drum. So spacing my rack toms and my kick drum, not a problem that I have. It's very easy for me to do. And if I had, um, I think the SQ1 12 inch tom, is probably 12 by eight, like more of a fast size tom. You know, it would be on the line, but I could still make it work. But if it was a 22 inch kick drum with that same 12 inch rack tom, I, I would be out of the territory that I'm comfortable with as far as positioning and placing that, that rack tom. There's just no way I can put this where I would want to have it uh, as far as the heights go, right? So there's just like a number of reasons that it just like these add up over time. I'm like, they're really difficult to tune. I don't know where to put it. And then combine that with the fact that I have always played a four-piece kit, so it also feels like totally unnecessary in that I never listened to or played music where I had to have this middle tom sound. And then once I added a second floor tom, I did several years ago when I got this SQ-1, you know, for me, that's my third tom. It's just over there, it's just another floor tom. And then I built all these mannerisms going down uh, with two floor toms. So it's almost like I wouldn't know what to do with the 12-inch rack tom, and I don't know how I would place it, and they're difficult to tune. So for that variety of reasons, I'm not a 12 inch rack tom sort of person. And now with that said, I have never, if I had one that was like customized and I was able to like pick the wood of it and where and the depth so I could place it correctly, I would be interested in trying it out to see if I could make it work. But then it comes with all these problems. Where does your ride symbol go? All the way over to the right? No, that's not where I play my ride symbol. I want it high and sort of close. So there's a whole game that I'd have to play with my setup, and that just drives me crazy. That seems like a like a lot of uncomfortable changes. So yeah, maybe one day, but uh, if you're looking for somebody to sweet talk a 12 inch Tom, you got the wrong dude on the wrong podcast. Not gonna happen here. That's, that's, why, that's why we don't mention 12 inch rack Toms Don't even talk pod. about them. Yeah. Don't even talk. <laughs> Adam hit me once, it wasn't fun. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. <laughs>
Okay, that'll do it for Q and A. So you can submit any of these questions on the Insta Chops Instagram, uh, YouTube comments down below, members area of OrlandoDrummer.com, or email me personally. Yeah. I get it in my inbox on my phone for you to ask whatever questions occur to you while listening to this podcast. Send news at Chris at OrlandoDrummer.com. Don't send pictures. <laughs> All right, I'll leave it to you to close out the podcast. <laughs> cool, cool. So I thought it would be interesting or fun to close out today with something a touch controversial that I have posted about before. So this shouldn't be too big of a mystery if anybody's followed me on Instagram over the last year or two. Um, you know, and that is this concept of repost pages. So I first want to start out by saying that, you know, there are there's a right way to do this sort of thing, like to have a repost page on Instagram specifically is where this happens most of the time, but they exist on every platform. On YouTube, on Facebook, there are people who make an entire platform which is centered around the idea of taking content that they did not create, very often without permission, and redistributing that content to a very generic group of fans that are in that sector. And I think the right way to do this is um, something along the lines of a company called Pickup Jazz. They're just called Pickup now. They've changed a lot of stuff. But they are effectively like a community hub where that's sort of the intention here is that they bring everybody together over this common theme and they offer exposure to the people whose content that they're using and they build like a separate sort of community here. I'm not opposed to that concept and I think there is a right way to do it. The closest I've seen it done would be something like Pickup, right? But with that said, there is something that I take issue with when it comes to taking content that does not belong to you and redistributing it with the intention of either monetizing that content or somehow just trying to accumulate like this personal gain from stuff that you didn't create. Because I, I've seen this many, many times. There are pages with 100,000 followers, 200,000, 500,000, 2 million followers. And the person running that page, this entire concept, has created or contributed literally nothing to this entire industry. And this is also paired with the fact that many times they're not actually asking um, the people to use their content, which as a content creator, I do take a lot of issue with that. It's not that you can't use somebody else's content, but that it's that you need to have permission to do so at the very least, right? And context does matter for sure, obviously, you know, if you're a fan and you're reposting your favorite drummer's piece of content, that's certainly a different scenario. If you run a podcast like this one and you are, you know, you have a guest on your podcast, like you're going to use their content to do a little promotion. There's many, many examples of where uh, it would be okay to do something like that, to use someone else's content without explicitly asking. Um, but, you know, I've had this message for, to everybody um, that's ever followed me, you know, a ton of you guys I know follow repost pages, pages that just, you can expect that they'll find some cool drum videos and they'll repost them and put them all in one spot. And it is a cool mechanism for you to discover new drummers. But when you discover a new drummer, please do them the favor, show them the courtesy of going and giving them your views, give them your attention, your likes, your comments. Because when I see a repost page, take a video of a drummer, and they take a piece of content that that drummer worked on and they repost it and they collect the 20,000 views, the 100 comments, all of the likes, all of the traffic, all of the attention. 
you know, it, it bothers me because I feel like that commodity that is that traffic, that is that attention, rightfully belongs to the person who created the content. So in my case personally, I block all repost pages. I'm not interested. I'm just not interested in in this hub where all of this content is effectively is effectively stolen, and uh, you know you're giving all of this attention to this particular page, which ultimately ends up selling T-shirts with a paradiddle printed on them, right? I mean, if that's the direction we're going, I'm, that's that's what fucking happens every time, right? I re- I really really dislike that. I dislike that. How much money do you think you deserve for? effectively stealing people's content and just reposting it without their permission and then slinging paradiddle t-shirts. You, you deserve nothing from that. That, that. That's not, there's no integrity in a business model like that. And, and I only mention this because it is rampant. It is everywhere. It happens all the time. And so if you encounter a page like that, it's up to you if you want to block them. Don't go leave a negative comment. Don't contribute to any of that nonsense. But do do the original artist the favor of giving them your attention because it is it's it's one of the reasons ultimately why we create content in the first place for other people to enjoy and hopefully that we can receive some sort of feedback to know that we've created something valuable that people learn from or just enjoyed listening to and you know it would be really a shame if you had liked and commented and expressed your enthusiasm over all of these videos on someone else's page who ultimately wanted to sell you an overpriced paradiddle t-shirt. You know, I, I hope that that's not the case and I feel that there's many artists who who deserve your attention. If you like their content, seek them out. Go give them your attention, they deserve it. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I'll, I'll leave it at that. So it's, I've had a pet peeve for the repost pages for years and years, never fully hashed it out. So there you go, that's how I feel. Don't follow the repost pages. Go give the artist the love. They deserve it. And we'll go out on that note. Sweet. Yeah. All right. Goodbye. Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye. Also, he got a drum set for sale. Yeah. Go check it out. Go buy that sucker. Somebody yeah. grab it. <laughs> Email me at chris at orlandodrama.com for any questions you have or to buy my kit. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> Take care, everybody. Thanks, guys. See you next week.